Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture for today is Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, April. Um, this is, uh, it's, it's good to uh, have gone through the entire book of Ephesians together and uh, to start a new series together, the second series in the life of our church, being a church about six months old. Uh, I'm Tim. If we haven't met yet, I'd love the opportunity to just get to know each other, why the Lord's brought us each in this room. Um, this new series that we're kicking off on the parables of Jesus. Uh, parables, that's, uh, you, we might not use that word a lot, but parables is a distinct way that Jesus taught. Jesus had an uh, incredibly important message, and there are all sorts of ways. He could just sang to us. He could have gotten up there and recited poetry to us. And uh, a huge way that he decided to communicate his ways to us is through a parable, which is just a short story. Character, plot, setting, short stories that you would tell them. And one thing that I think is a true of a parable is that those who spend the most time seeking to mine the depths of the story will find the most gold in it. And so that's kind of our, our hope in this going through the series for each of us is that as we mine the gold of these stories that, that, that will really see how much is there. Um, I, th I think when I was growing up, though, and uh, growing up and kind of attending church sporadically, not even sure if there was a God, uh, had very little, uh, I mean, I think if you, like, my life depended on it, and I had to tell you, like, 10 stories from the Bible, like, I, man, I'd be really struggling to, to even give any details of the Bible. And I think if you would have said, what type of writing is the Bible? I would have said, Bible. <laughs> like, it is, what's the genre of the Bible? Uh, Bible? Like, isn't it its own, like, way of writing? Um, and, uh, but as I came to uh, know Jesus in college and I came to know the Bible in a more intimate way, um, I started realizing that there are actually many genres of literature inside of the Bible in how God had, had chose to tell us about him. 60% of the Bible, 60% of, I think there's 1,108 chapters in the Bible, 60% of them are narrative. So God is telling us a story, and in that story, we are learning things about ourselves, we are learning things about him through character, setting, plot, all of these things. Uh, true stories, 60% of the Bible. 20% of the Bible is prophecy. 
These aren't just predictions about the future. A lot of prophets are, are calling people back to following God in his ways. That's 20% of the Bible. 7% of the entire Bible is in the form of a letter, like the book of Ephesians was, which is kind of like an instruction manual. So where 60% are telling a story, 7% is like an instruction man manual, 6% is wisdom literature. So that would be like Proverbs. And you're going you're gonna to read Proverbs way differently than you're going to read an instruction manual. 5% is poetry, right? So if a friend is like, hey, I wrote a poem for you, it might feel really awkward at first. But then as you sit down, you're going to expect, like, you're going you're gonna to really be, be reading a lot into a few words. And that's what we see as we approach 5% of the Bible poetry. Two percent of the Bible is apocalyptic literature. This is like the book of Revelation, second half of Daniel, and in there they're talking about future things in ways that it's even hard to comprehend with words because it's stuff we've never experienced before. So you get a lot of, it'll be like this. <laughs> it won't be exactly like this. It won't be this exactly. It'll be like this because I can't even describe exactly because we've never experienced it. And that'll be 2% of the Bible. And none of these should be read the same. An instruction manual is very detailed. It's meant to be followed step one, step two, step three, a poem is meant to, to sit back and really chew on words and phrases. You'll go through a poem so much slower. And I think this is a joy of Scripture, is that we get to spend a lifetime growing in each of these genres. Get to spend a lifetime in the Psalms, where, where we're navigating poetry through the hand of one who is both a poet and a warrior, being David, who writes a majority of the Psalms. So as we approach the parables of Jesus, Jesus' parables reveal profound spiritual truths about God, humanity, the world, the future. And it's interesting that it was actually prophesied that Jesus would speak to us in parables. Did you know that? So hundreds of years before Jesus even came, prophecies were saying he's going to speak to us in parables. Uh, look at Psalm 78 verse 2, and it'll be up here too. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Isn't that crazy? Jesus is telling us that these parables, he's like bringing them up where they haven't seen daylight ever. And things are being revealed to us that have been hidden since the foundation of the world and are now coming to us through a parable, through story form. And uh, we're learning things specifically about God, his kingdom, that were hidden for a long time, and now they're finding their way to us. And so, and I think for us to receive it that way, you know, th these are not like dusty things. These are instead cutting-edge realities that were hidden for so long and are now finding their way to us and they're being done in a way that we need to chew on them. We have to spend time with them to actually pull out what Jesus has for us. So the first parable that we're going to look at today, we won't look at every one that Jesus shared in this series, but, uh, but we'll look at many of them that take us through many different areas of our lives. Uh, but this first one's in Luke 18. 
So if you could turn there, if you don't have a Bible, we have a bunch on the chairs. Uh, Feel free to grab one, uh, and you can have that one. Uh, But Luke 18, so if you get to the the New Testament, then we'll go Matthew, Mark, Luke. uh, Luke 18, starting at verse 1. Luke 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Right out of the gate, we're actually told the reason that he's telling us the story. Okay? Now that is like, it doesn't happen very often in the parables. Okay? And it doesn't happen very often. I mean, like, if I'm going to tell Silas a story, a lot of times, like, I'll get lost in just telling him a story. But if on the beginning I'm like, hey, I'm actually telling you this story because of this reason for your life, it's like, man, it's like, wow, thanks for, like, giving me a heads up on the front end why you're telling me this story. And so what Jesus is saying is, like, I am going to tell you this story so that you ought always to pray and not lose heart. I think a good question for us is, are we tempted to view prayer as a little thing? Or maybe we think like God's too bugged by our prayers, right? Like if all of us just like went deep into prayer and it'd be like, man, I think maybe we should pray in moderation. Like I think we should maybe take turns So we don't overwhelm God with our prayers. Like, now, would we actually say that out loud? Or do we maybe actually think that way? Um, Man, maybe we've lost heart to pray. Maybe it's been like, man, I had seasons where I really did pray. And felt like it was bouncing off the ceiling. And so so I'm just kind of, just kind of stopped doing that. And, uh, And I just don't have the heart to pray anymore. And Jesus isn't like, oh, he's like, no, this is actually why I'm telling you this story. Like, I get it. I, I, I get it. Like, that's one of the beauties of our Savior is that Scripture even tells us, like, there's nothing that we can feel that he hasn't felt. Uh, he is like us in every way, yes, yet was without sin. Like, that is the only road that he didn't walk down, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't that he doesn't know that road because he took that sin for each one of us. He's well familiar and intimate with our sin, but for to recognize, like, he is letting us in on this parable. Maybe we've prayed in the past. We didn't see God answer those prayers. We lost heart in praying. Another thing, though, is maybe life has just been so good that um, we just kind of haven't thought about God, haven't turned to him. I've just kind of felt like things are going well, things are going okay, um, and uh, I just kind of haven't thought about him. And I think for each of us, like, would we have ears to hear this parable? And this is the parable that he tells us starting in verse 2. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Great. Two worst traits you can have in a judge, Right? Someone who does not care about God and does not care about people. Some of you might say, yeah, I think I've met this guy before. I think I've met this judge. This judge um, thinks that they are the king of the mountain. They think the buck stops with them. They see themselves as being the judge of the world um, and don't see God as being that. And they... uh, 
I think they're in that seat for themselves. And they're not in that seat for the people that they have the opportunity to serve. And so here we have a character. The first character is a judge who has no character. So I think that's like a good thing to picture in our minds is that the first character Jesus tells us is a man who has no character, uh, who is, does not fear God, does not respect man. Now, verse 3, the second character is introduced. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. A widow was to be one of the most protected people in society. It's true then, should be true today as well. The orphan and the widow are two people groups that God repeatedly tells people, don't mess with these people. If you're messing with this group of people, you're messing with me. God says in multiple places in Scripture. For more than 4,000 years, that has been true. Um, This woman does not say, give me justice against all of my adversaries. Look at that. That's singular. God, give me justice, or to the judge, give me justice against my adversary. She has one particular adversary. Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell the details. Is it have to do with her house? Have to do with work? Does it have to do with an inheritance? Like, you know, is there a power broker in the middle there that is taking advantage of her? Is it a neighbor that's just not treating her the way that she should be treated? We don't know, but we know that there is one person taking advantage of her she has an adversary. The men of the city should be rising up. The judge should be rising up, protecting her, helping to provide for her. But she is alone in the world. Even the judge, which is her one path to go to, the judge, obviously, because here it says, too, she kept coming to him, meaning that he kept turning her away. <laughs> he kept ignoring her. He doesn't care. She is left to beg the judge who doesn't care for justice. And, uh, you know, I think in this part of the story, it's like, you know, let me at him. Where is he, Jesus? We'll form a mob and we'll attack, you know. Um, Verse 4 is where Jesus then takes his parable. For a while, he refused. The judge refused. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This like, this is like a turn that you don't expect for when Jesus is like telling the story. It's like, man, this is a radical guy who tells stories like this and tells parables like this. You know, and it's like, is this how God is? Does he feel like we're going to beat him down by our prayers? You know, like these are legitimate questions that the parable, I think, makes us like chew on and enjoy chewing on the facets of the story. And here he's saying, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Learn wisdom here. For each of us to learn wisdom here, pay attention to the details here. Observe her heart. Observe his heart. She knows the only hope she has for her situation to change is through this judge, and she could have given up. She could have given up 
She could have just kind of retreated into her home. She could have grown bitter. She could have just kind of smoldered alone in her home. But instead, she persists. She persists and he relents. He gives her justice so she will leave her, so, so that she will leave him alone. Now, the king is going to teach us here of his kingdom. So this is where Jesus pivots, and he's like, okay, I'm going to now teach you about my kingdom. He is the king. He teaches us about his kingdom. He's going to zoom out from this parable and teach his ways, and this is where we pay careful attention because Jesus, what he teaches, could really affect us for a lifetime in these next few verses. Verse 6, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Man, there's, there's a lot in these two verses. Uh, one thing, I don't know if you um, noticed it, and if I were you, I would be okay if you're comfortable writing in your Bible. In verse 7, to circle that word elect. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay all over them? I think it's fascinating that, that, that Jesus uses that word in that place. Because he could have said, um, will not God give justice to his people? Will not God give justice to the church? Will not God give justice to his followers? Uh, will God get, not give justice to his children? But instead he uses the word elect. So it's like, what are we talking about here? So we're talking about the doctrine of election. And what, what this really, we see in Ephesians 1.4, even says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So that what this doctrine of election is, is the idea that even before we were formed, God chose us. Now, Ephesians 2.8.9 makes it clear, like, like, we're saved by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. But where I think the doctrine of election is amazing is if I said to Hannah and Silas, and I was like, hey guys, in two months, we are going to be at Disney. And they're like, yes, or wherever it is, right? There's a real possibility that I have no idea what I'm talking about. Because it's like, there are so many things that could break down in our house to be like, yeah, that's not going to happen, right? Or there's the coronavirus, right, could like escalate to the point where Disney is like shut down for a month or something. And it's like, okay, that's not going to happen. You know, like, I mean, you could just go on and on and on and on about where at my best I could say, there's a reasonably good chance that we are going to do this. But for me to say, this is going to happen for sure, I don't have the ability to like ever make sure that that is going to happen, Okay. Now, like Jesus could say to the thief on the cross, though, today you'll be with me in paradise. Or Jesus can say something as bold as, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And we have no idea the promise that is being made in such a simple sentence because what that means is by him saying, hey, Rebecca Emgarten, you will be with me forever in paradise. For Jesus to say that to her means he 
is willing to do everything that is necessary to see that happen, and he has the power to do it and the power to actually see it all the way through. So when he says elect to us, what he is saying is all of the love, the power, the perseverance, everything that he has committed to us to see us safely home forever. And that is a power that is something and a love that this unrighteous judge knows nothing of. This is the opposite of an unrighteous judge who doesn't care about God or people. This is God himself who is committing to people a lifetime of of his love towards us so that whatever he says, we can take it to the bank. Whatever he says, we can build our entire lives on it, and it's not going to change because it is a solid rock that we're building our lives on. So when he says, will not God give justice to the elect? He is using a word there that communicates to us that he is all in, has been all in, and will be all in. And like Satan's not going to like overthrow him in 5,000 years, and he's going to have to tell us, like, hey, it's all off. It's all called off. It's like, no, he can actually see through every word that he promises to us. These elect people, Jesus wants us to contrast the unjust judge of the world who has guaranteed way more than justice. He is, God has guaranteed grace, mercy, rescue. It is the, these people, though, who God says they cry to him day and night. Did you get that? So in light of all of this that he says to the elect, he then says, who cry to him day and night. We're not crying to him because he hates us. We're not crying to him because he's ignoring us. The guy in the parable is ignoring the persistent widow. Instead, Jesus loves us and we're crying to him day and night because these are the deep waters that we're living in. Look how God speaks of the life that the Apostle Paul will have with him. Acts 9, 15 through 16, if you want to jot it down, but we have it up here too. Acts 9, 15 through 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Crying out to God day and night is okay. The elect do that. Those who will one day walk on golden streets as free citizens of heaven, we first spend a life crying out day and night to him. Verse 7 ends, will he delay long over them? I think from our perspective, it feels like he has delayed way too long. When we look from our chair at the timetable, it looks like he has delayed long over us. From his chair, when he looks at it, he is telling us, will I delay long over you? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. The way that God is listening, contrary to the judge, justice comes speedily with our God. All that is not as it should be, where justice has been served in our life, he will give justice speedily. There's, this is a, so encouraging, I feel like, so freeing for us all 
to as we're looking to him, knowing that we're elect, as we're looking to him and knowing all the commitment that that means of him pouring his life out to him to us, uh, then for us to to recognize that uh, that justice is coming. And man, for justice to be coming is so stinking encouraging for so many of us um, that we can put our life in his hands and he is just, but also knowing that justice is coming can be terrifying, absolutely terrifying if you are looking to your own strength, if you're looking to, to, to yourself, you're trusting yourself it will be a dreadful day when he says, hey, justice is coming. It will be a beautiful day when we're trusting him. And that's where he goes at the end of this parable. Look where he lands the plane on verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Isn't that incredible, just beautiful imagery? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in Collins Maxwell? Will he find faith in Baxter, where the best community group is? <laughs> Will he find faith in Colonesco when the Son of Man comes? I love it doesn't say if he comes. When the Son of Man comes. The good judge is coming. He is looking to find faith on the earth. Um, I was thinking about just the world of fiction. And in the world of fiction, just like where we see this beautifully lived out, and uh, I don't know if you've read or seen the movies of the Chronicles of Narnia uh, through C.S. Lewis, but uh, a beautiful series, uh, Aslan, who's a lion, that, uh, that clearly represents Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, but there's a family in the Chronicles of Narnia that I feel like live out this parable beautifully, and it's the beavers. I don't know if you, you remember the beavers, but they kind of are prominent towards the beginning of the, of the book. And uh, with the beavers, it's, it's winter there. If you remember in Narnia, it's, it's never springtime in Narnia. Uh, not only is it winter, but the beavers literally live in a hole in the ground, right? So the beavers are never like, look at our palatial, you know, estate that we have here. They're living in a hole in the ground, yet the beavers are fun. They're full of life. They're faithful. They're holding on to the faith in ways that so many around them have rejected, uh, the, rejected the faith. The beavers, though, uh, in this simple faith that they have, they produce this wise quote in the midst of summer. Uh, in the midst of winter, though, is this: "Make no mistake, Aslan is on the move." And I love that. Make no mistake. Aslan is on the move. Jesus is on the move. And the beavers are, are embracing this. And I think many of us in here, um, man, we can be so tempted to lose heart in some area of our lives, maybe in all areas of our lives. Uh, maybe it feels like it's winter and it's never summer in a part of our lives. Um, maybe you haven't prayed about your job situation in a while because it just feels like it's always winter and it's never summer. Um, Maybe you've stopped praying for your family members to come to Jesus. Uh, maybe you've stopped uh, praying about stuff with your kids that you've just kind of, oh, well, I think this is the way it's always going to be. Um, maybe some of us have stopped asking Jesus to free us from just long-term sins in our life. We've lost heart. Some have stopped uh, praying for your spouse. 
you've lost heart that things will change, that they can change, that they can grow, that you can grow and change. Um, I think some have stopped praying for healing from past abuse. We've lost heart. And uh, man, would the people of Sacred Mission Church, would us, would we be a church, would we be persistently praying people like this widow? A persistent praying people through anything that comes our way. When Jesus comes, would he find faith on earth when he looks to rural central Iowa? Um, I came across, across this quote years ago, and it's just, it's just messed with me, and I beautifully, uh, it's from one of the more well-known followers of Jesus in the 1800s, this guy living in London, Charles Spurgeon, it's his name, uh, lived just a wild life, uh, full on for Jesus, uh, was just rid- riddled with, uh, he had gout really bad, so uh, he preached for decades, but he missed one out of every three Sundays on average, because he just couldn't get out of bed, he was just too sick. And uh, there are times that he would be encouraged that he had friends who were going to come over and roll him over in his bed. And he said it was such discouraging days when he'd be rolled over and they would see that the bed sores on this side were worse than this side. So they'd roll him over, then roll him right back over. And, um, and so he just lived a hard life. He was able to lead literally thousands and thousands of people to Jesus. There are kings, even presidents of the United States would take trips over just to hear him preach. Uh, His messages were published in the London Times, um, and he says this kind of in line with the persistent widow. He says, such mature people as some elderly, godly men and women are could scarcely have been produced if they had not been emptied from vessel to vessel and made to see their own emptiness and the vanity of all things round about them. Glory be to God for the furnace, the hammer, and the file. Heaven shall be all the fuller of bliss because we have been filled with anguish here below. And earth shall be better tilled because our training in the school of adversity. The lesson of wisdom is be not dismayed by soul trouble. Count it no strange thing but a part of the ordinary life. Should the power of depression be more than ordinary, think not that all is over with your usefulness. Cast not away your confidence, for it has great recompense of reward. Even if the enemy's foot be on your neck, expect to rise and overthrow him. Cast the burden of the present, along with the sin of the past and the fear of the future, upon the Lord, who forsakes not his saints. Live by the day, I by the hour, Put no trust in frames and feelings. Care more for a grain of faith than a ton of excitement. I love that. Care more for a grain of faith than for a ton of excitement. Let's care more for a grain of faith to see that in our kids' ministry, in the life of our kids, to see that in our community groups as we're like, wow, a, a grain of faith is forming here and uh, is like a mustard seed that's going to that's gonna grow and take off. So, so three questions as, as we come to a close this morning. First question, where have you lost heart? Or where are you in danger of losing heart? I think the Lord will show us this if we ask him. Lord, where, where have I lost heart? You gave me this parable so that I would, I would not lose heart. That would be persistent in prayer, reignite a life of prayer. 
where, where, where was I in danger of losing heart? Second question, where do we need to be persistent in prayer? Not in persistently taking matters into our own hands, but persistently putting them back into his hands. Could be our marriages, persistently putting it in his hands. Could be singleness, persistently putting it in his hands, not keeping it in our hands. Could be broken relationships that need to be healed, persistently putting it in his hands, looking to him for justice, restoration. Could be work, persistently putting that in his hands. Could be finances, persistently putting that into his hands. He owns it all anyway. Where do we need to be persistent in prayer? And then third, coming back to when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? If he looked to you right now, would he be finding faith on earth? I think it's just a clear question. It's a great question. It's, uh, his word is for each one of us. We hear it collectively. It's for each one of us. He's saying, when I come, I want to find faith on the earth. When he comes, if he looked to you right now, would he be finding faith on the earth? He isn't looking for religious people. Don't, that's, I think that's a scheme of Satan that when he says faith, we think religion. Okay, here's the difference. The huge difference is religious people are trusting in what they are doing for God. Religious people are trusting in what they are doing for God. Faithful people are trusting what God is doing for them, what Jesus is doing for them, what Jesus has done for them, and the life change that that is as we follow him, as he saves us, as he has done the work on our behalf that we can throw ourselves on him and not look to our own hands, but look to the nail-scarred hands, trusting in the work of Jesus, our Savior, saving us, changing us, sending us into our community. If he looked to you right now, would he be finding faith on earth? And um, man, I think we see in the Bible people who say, I do believe, God help my unbelief. It's a, it's a super appropriate response. I believe, help my unbelief. I want to grow. I want to not lose heart. I want to be like that persistent widow. I want to be persistent. I want my kids even to see that or nieces and nephews people in our community, that we will spend a lifetime going to our God who is not an unjust judge, but is the just judge. And uh, man, if you walked in here and you would say, man, if he looked to me right now, he would not be finding faith on the earth. I would just say the beauty of what Jesus has done for us is that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And um, man, if your heart is there, and you're desiring to go there, um, what I would just super recommend is that you don't walk out this door without just praying to him and talking to him about it. You could raise your hand, you could come forward and talk to me, you could, you could talk to people around you, or you could just talk to God and saying, I'm putting my trust in you, Jesus is my savior. I don't wanna trust in myself. My trust is in you. I heard that you died for me, you live in my place, you conquered death, so that I can live in you, and I hear that your blood 
washes my sins away and that you've removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. We've, we've seen, in six months, we've seen over 12 people so far give their lives to Jesus. Tonight at our, at our youth group, we're just going to have students just share about giving their lives to Jesus. And I'd say Aslan is on the move. <laughs> Jesus is on the move, and if you're here, it's not accidental that you're here. You're here because he's on the move for each of us, that we would grow and that we would be people where he does find faith on the earth. So could we all stand up together? super powerful thing that Jesus gave us to step towards him in faith is communion. He gave us his body, which is bread, and what we do here is just, just tear it off and, uh, and have his bread, uh, his life that was lived in our place. He says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And then we take uh, his blood, so we have both juice and wine. They used to be different colors, so they're both dark red now, so beware. Uh, we have little labels there. And uh, um, he did not hold himself back from us. He warns us, if you are not in Christ, instead of coming to the table, come to Jesus. Um, he does warn us to make sure we don't take this without evaluating our lives, evaluating our sin, repenting of our sin, and taking this in a way that is not flippant, but instead to recognize that this is a sacred moment, but a beautiful moment where Jesus says, come to me, come to me, come to me who anyone who labors is heavy laden, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. So if you're serving communion, please uh, come on up this morning and um, yeah, Rick and Ellen and the Huntrods, thanks for serving us this morning. And, um, and Let's come and we'll, we'll take the elements, go back to our seats, and then we'll take it together as family. So let's come, let's respond.